winter was here, but we're just getting started on our Game of Thrones rewatch here for Season 1, Episode 9, Baylor. And now, here are the two guys who are so relieved that we don't have to tiptoe around the fact that Ned Stark is dead. I'm Rob Sister, <laughs> Josh Wiggler. How are you? Oh, uh, yeah, that's freeing. That's freeing. Like, that's the first really big spoiler that you just have to, like, shut the hell up about for talking about Season 1 in a spoiler-free way. Uh, so that's great that that's out of the way. Woo. Sorry that we're sounding so jubilant over the death of Ned Stark. It was really hard to not talk about, thing. okay? It was hard. It was hard. So I'm, I'm like patting really you on the thing. back. Yeah, yeah. You did great, Rob. Great job. Great job. Uh, not as good as the other Rob. Rob the Rob Stark had a great week this week as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really good stuff keeping a lid on the Ned Stark death. But now we can be free. Ned Stark is dead. Yes, yes. And this is like a huge seminal moment in the series. And a thing that when it happened back in 2011, people were besides themselves. Oh, yeah, absolutely. June 12th, 2011, original air date of Baylor. It was a big deal. Uh, you know, Game of Thrones at the time, it was just really becoming a big deal. People were really grabbed by it. The audience was growing. Um, and this was like the, this was like the first real moment that people who had already, um, come into contact with the books on which the show is based were waiting to see what people were going to, how people were going to react to this moment. Like those people, the people who had read the books obviously knew that Ned Stark was not making it out of season one alive. And you could still go online now and like find some of these incredible reaction videos to people watching Ned Stark die for the first time. Like friends of people who have not read the Game of Thrones books, who had read the books on which Game of Thrones is based, just like filming their friends, knowing that they were about to have a massive reaction to losing up to that point, the main character, the protagonist of Game of Thrones, get killed off, not even in the season finale. He's getting killed off right beforehand. Uh, And it was shocking and it was explosive. It yielded some really funny results on the meta level and in terms of the meme culture. Um, but it's just also such a massive turning point for the show. Uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit already when we discussed the death of Viserys Targaryen a couple of episodes earlier and how this is a show that very quickly proves like the characters are not safe. Like anyone can die no matter how important they seem. And if Viserys is kind of a declarative statement in that regard, like the Ned Stark thing is the, is the opus up to this point. Like this is, this is a true song that is being sung about just how tragic this story might get and just how unsafe everybody should be. Um, so it's exciting. It's scary. It's the big deal of season one for sure up to this point at the very least. And if you hadn't heard that Ned Stark uh, was going to get killed off in season one for the people who haven't been watching Game of Thrones up until this point, I'm impressed. I'm impressed that you missed it because it was everywhere. It was everywhere. And Ned really gets sold a bill of goods here, Josh, where he, the Honorable Ned Stark is given this opportunity uh, by way of Varys to say, hey, just come out there and admit that you're a traitor. Admit that Joffrey is the rightful king. Cersei knows you're an honorable person. This is going to be the best case scenario for Sansa. Uh, you'll get to go to the wall. He, I don't think he cares about going to the wall, he says in the episode. Uh, do you think that my life is some precious thing to me? What about the life of your daughter? Varys ends up saying to him, or your daughters. And so he says, okay, I will do this. I will give up, you know, my honor just to protect the ones that I love. And then on top of that, Joffrey says, no, we have to make an example of him. 
Yeah, I don't think that he was able to take into account the fact that he was dealing with a pure Lannister king. You know, this is the the wicked little boy king Joffrey Baratheon, secretly Joffrey Lannister, being that he is the product of Jaime and Cersei. And we have seen the Lannister capacity for cruelty already through this point in the series and even within Joffrey himself. But once you superpower Joffrey, once you put a crown on that kid's head, once you give him a screaming crowd hungry and thirsty for blood to to give them the head of a traitor like he's going to take that opportunity every day of the week and Ned couldn't anticipate that there's no way to anticipate the way that Joffrey is going to act and it seems like this is a completely impulsive thing that he is doing in the moment he gives that speech about how Sansa was basically like uh, you know please mercy for my father and Cersei's like yes go and serve the Night's Watch and that would be totally fine and Joffrey says but they have soft hearts soft hearts I've got a hard heart, and a hard-hearted king will cleave the head off of this man. And as soon as he gives the order, Santa's obviously distraught, understandably. But even Cersei's like, hey, Joffrey. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, this is not the way this is supposed to go. And Joffrey's like, yeah, 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 it's cool. And he's like, he, like Joffrey's even like fist pumping at one point. He's loving it. He's soaking up the moment. So it, it adds an extra level of tragedy where, yeah, like Ned is finally willing to sacrifice his honor and everything that he stands for for everything that we've come to know about what's foundational to this guy. What are the fundamentals of who Eddard Stark is? He's willing to cast all of that aside for the shot at saving his family's life and preventing further bloodshed. And not only does he still die anyway without any guarantee of his daughter's safety, he dies while a wicked little boy king is essentially dancing on his still active grave. Uh, so it's a really horrible, horrible way for this character to go out for so many reasons. Yeah, something else I caught on the rewatch, Varys is also like, no, 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 stop him, stop happened this is bad this is bad you know Varys very much uh, knows what he wants to have happen here and that he knows that this is a terrible idea for the future of the realm at least for trying to keep the peace to tr- behead Ned Stark in this manner yeah, I think that, you know, there's a moment earlier in the episode where Ned is, you know, saying, like, I've given up guessing, trying to, you know, trying to figure out what it is you truly want and what it is you truly represent. Uh, and Varys is, like, trying to tell him, like, I'm a good actor. Like, I'm acting the part of somebody who has to be really loyal to the king. Trust me, I just want to serve the realm, man. Uh, and I feel like when he is having this moment of, like, being distraught over Joffrey's choice, when you're seeing Varys in the background acting that way, I feel like that helps his argument out a little bit in terms of like this is a guy who authentically wanted Ned Stark to survive this situation Uh, and it's also unsettling because Varys seems to be a guy who's very plugged in and very put together and to see him disturbed to see him Mm -hmm. unsettled that's an unsettling feeling okay so that's what's going on uh, with Ned obviously Uh, we see so good it's so good just the way it's all shot too, like taking it from Arya's perspective and like seeing her standing at the at the statue of Baylor and seeing Yorin, the guy from the Night's Watch, coming to collect her and just that final shot of her uh, looking up at the birds and, you know, the the sound has drowned out. Just the way that this whole this whole execution scene was executed, it's just spectacular. Like, a lot of people still talk about this final scene in Baylor as one of the pivotal scenes of the show and one of the best scenes of the show. And even going through seven seasons at this point that you and I have seen, Rob, I gotta feel like this is still, like, a, a an 
complete scene, at least top 10, if not top five, baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's iconic in terms of Game of Thrones lore. I I don't think you can have a conversation about the history of the show, no matter how small you shrink it of here's Game of Thrones in one minute. Here's Game of Thrones in five minutes. You're all this is going to be part of it, no matter how you slice it. Yeah, I think that's true. However, Ilan Payne swings the axe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I gotta say, you know, I, like I've said before, I'm, I'm, I'm ranking the episodes again as we go here, and very easily, Baylor is number one of season one at this point. And I think this episode is great in many, many respects uh, outside of this scene, but this scene really does just in such a singular way catapult it to the top of the pack through nine episodes of Game of Thrones. It's pretty untouchable for me, uh, and just that scene directed by Alan Taylor, who is somebody who is going to direct a bunch of episodes of Game of Thrones, including the most recent penultimate episode of the entire series. He, he directs the penultimate episode of season seven. So this is a guy who is going to be an important part of the Game of Thrones directing team in the early going of Game of Thrones and then returning later in the series. Uh, fantastic work on, on his part as well. So the episode really has this King's Landing bookend where we start with Ned in the cell visited by Varys and ultimately end on Ned being beheaded at the Sept of Baylor, but in the middle, we really see a lot of the ramping up of the war between the Starks and the Lannisters. So we'll see the Stark forces moving and they end up at the Twins that that is going to be a crossing that they need to make with the 20,000 men in the Stark army. The Twins is held by Walder Frey, who we will meet. Yes, who would go on to be the star of the strain. Stragoy! Yes. And we will then see for the first time Cat uh, Stark uh, having a scene with Walder Frey trying to negotiate for the Stark men to cross. And Walder Frey is instantly the worst, right? Like, he's just awful immediately, this guy. Uh, great actor, David Bradley, fantastic. Love me some Filch. Love me some Satrakian, Stragoy. Even if that show is not so good, he was great on it. Uh, but he's a jerk. He's terrible. He's a, he's a bad, bad man here as Walder Frey. Uh, he is, you know, uh, he's being horrible to, it seems like, his kids, his heirs. Uh, he is being terrible to this 15-year-old girl who is his wife. Mm -hmm. At the moment, that's not great. Latest wife. Latest wife, yeah. Uh, so Walder Frey is, uh, in the books, he's, he's described as kind of like impossibly ancient. Uh, David Bradley, I would never describe as impossibly ancient. So, you know, maybe aged it down a little bit for the show, but the, but the core of this guy is intact from book to show. And the core of this guy is that this is a bitter old man who gives zero Fs, uh, gives no Fs about anybody but the phrase. Those are the only Fs he cares about. Uh, and he's talking to Catelyn Stark about this and Catelyn Stark having grown up in River Run, which is a big important house here in the Riverlands, which is where Lord Frey is currently situated. They know each other. You know, they've got family history and Catelyn thinks that she can talk some sense to Lord Walder. But if Lord Walder was ever a sensible guy, if Lord Walder was ever a calm and even mannered person, he is a far away from that guy and he just wants to get straight to the point. And apparently straight to the point is some sort of marriage pact between the Starks and the Freys if Rob Stark is to cross through the 
the crossing uh, through the twins. And uh, that seems like that seems like a bad thing for Rob. Doesn't seem like something he's really psyched about. Mm -hmm, Right. The deal ends up being uh, that there is a squire. I mean, Kat really, you know, does bury the lead in terms of like, oh, so you have to have uh, one of, you know, Lord Frey's, uh, you know, kids as a squire. Like, okay, Uh, And then uh, Arya has to marry one of his sons. Like, oh, well, she's not going to like that. No. Uh, And then also uh, Rob Stark has to marry one of Walter Frey's daughters. And uh, Kat says that she, she thought there was one that was okay. Yeah, that's a great moment where Theon is like trying not to crack up and Rob is like, did she get a look at one of his daughters? And she's like, yeah, there's like one. (laughs) Okay. There's like one that was okay. That was all right. And Rob's like, all right. Okay, fine, fine. Mm -hmm. Because he's a Stark and he will do his duty and he will do what has to be done in order to to save the day and fight the good fight and keep the North kicking butt. But he doesn't have to like it, Rob. Right. He doesn't have to like it at all. No, he does not. And so we are going to end up having a major battle take place uh, in this episode. Uh, although most of the action is going to be off screen. That is going to be, as we saw last week, where Tyrion was going to rejoin the Lannister forces. He was going to be part of the Vanguard with the Stone Crows. And so that we were going to see him the night before this all takes place place when Braun brings him a uh, lovely young lady and her name is Shay Josh yes who he found from a knight named Sir Ginger I'm I'm hmm. blanking on on Sir Ginger's last name uh, but brought brought Shay over to Tyrion was that Ed Sheeran <laughs> maybe maybe that could be that I think, could is it a spoiler could, is that a spoiler okay I, it's, it's, listen, fine. If that's it's a spoiler, fine it's, it's fine a, the mildest spoiler listen we made it this far without spoiling ned stark's death i think i'm okay with us spoiling. uh-oh surprise ed sheeran's gonna be on game of thrones at some point it's gonna ruin your enjoyment of the show very much knowing that um but yeah so so we're gonna get to meet shay here who is going to keep Tyrion company for the night uh we are going to see that in return Tyrion will uh get grant her safety no one will hurt her for as long as he's around she will also get to enjoy his company he hears his company is spectacular uh and more gold than you can spend if you live a thousand years which sounds like a lot of gold Mm -hmm. uh lots and lots and lots of gold and it leads to uh a really terrific scene you know we're already tracking the Tyrion Bronn bromance that seems to be developing here now we add Shay as another piece to this dynamic and they are basically playing the Westerosi equivalent of I never which is uh, a prerequisite to like being like a phenomenal TV show you have to have an I never see mm-hmm. so ultimately Tyrion uh, will be part of this battle which I guess is a decisive victory for the Lannister forces they end up overcoming 2,000 Stark men who it seems as though Rob Stark just uh, sent 2,000 men uh, to their death uh, to be just slaughtered by the Lannisters but the at the cost of that they were able to then beat the Lannisters in a, another engagement and then capture Jamie Lannister. It's a great moment when um, when Tyrion wakes up and he's getting updated on everything that's going on in the battle. Though I will say, highly frustrating in the moment that Tyrion just gets knocked out and you skip the entire battle. Like, I remember that being like, oh, 
F you, Game of Thrones. That's so cheap and not in the Ryan Aiken sense. Uh, it was just really, really frustrating. But Tyrion waking up and surveying the battle and getting to hear about what had happened, and he encounters his father, Tywin, uh, says, yeah, there were only 2,000 Stark bannermen, not 20,000 like we were told. Uh, so, of course, it was easy. And Tyrion's like, all right, well, is the Stark boy, uh, did you get him? Nope, he wasn't here. Where was he? With his other 18,000 men, which is just such a great line delivery from Charles Dance, I thought. And then you cut to the fact that, yeah, Rob has this decisive victory over another sect of the Lannister army, uh, a much more important um, victory than the one that Tywin Lannister is able to enjoy because Rob walks away with Jamie Lannister as a prisoner. The Kingslayer has been taken into stark custody, uh, which is an exciting development for sure. And Jamie offers up a quick way to settle all of this, like, hey, we don't have to do this whole big war thing you and i can just do single combat any weapon you want i feel good about it uh and rob's like yeah that's why we're not gonna do that Mm -hmm. because if i if i face off against you in one-on-one anything i'm screwed so no we'll just keep you prisoner and we're gonna keep fighting a war for a while if i do it your way you'll win yeah exactly and he's probably right on that i mean jamie lannister is renowned as like the greatest swordsman in in the seven kingdoms so it doesn't feel like a fight that rob stark is gonna win Mm -hmm. and so they send jamie lannister into irons and so he will be a prisoner of the stark army moving forward of course uh we have uh some action going on in the north at the wall because uh john snow has a new sword Jon Snow has a new sword, uh, and it's not just any new sword. He has a sword that is officially a BD, a big deal. This is Longclaw. Longclaw, a BFD indeed. Uh, Longclaw is a ancestral sword within House Mormont. Uh, we know that Lord Commander Jor is a Mormont. We also know of another Mormont on Game of Thrones. That's Jorah Mormont, who is hanging out with Daenerys Targaryen out in Essos, who is Lord Commander Mormont's son, but he is in exile and he was not worthy of receiving Longclaw, this family sword, so he doesn't have it. Jon Snow gets it instead. Lord Commander Mormont gives it to him because Jon Snow saved Lord Commander Mormont's life during the attack in last week's episode. And the biggest reason why this is such an awesome, important development and kind of a shocking development as well, uh, this is a Valyrian sword. And Valyrian steel is a highly precious metal in the world of Game of Thrones. Uh, we already know this based on the Valyrian dagger that was used in the assassination attempt on Bran Stark. This is a precious metal. Few people have it. If you have it, it is a very rare thing that you want to hold on to tightly. It, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's origins are from an old kingdom that has since fallen, old Valyria. So really ancient, powerful stuff. And the fact that Lord Commander Mormont is giving this to Jon Snow without any argument, without, with, he's not willing to hear any protesting to the contrary. This is a man sword and you're a man now and you're going to have this sword. It's a really big move for Lord Commander Mormont to give this to John. A real show of not just his appreciation of this guy but his um, his investment in this guy as well. Alright, and then also, Josh, a lot going on in the East uh, with the deteriorating health of Khal Drogo. Khal Drogo not doing well. Not doing well. well. Not doing well. 
It looks bad. It looks bad. And uh, it looks like a combustible situation amongst the Dothraki as well, right? Right, because Jorah is pushing for Daenerys to let's get out of here because the uh, the, the rest of the Kalasar, they do not respect the line of secession here in terms of what will happen when Khal Drogo passes away because if he does not make a recovery, Daenerys will not be considered somebody that needs to be held in high regard yeah it's not like westeros it's not like where you know if robert baratheon dies his son becomes the king it's not like Khal drogo dies and then daenerys becomes khaleesi of the entire dothraki and like takes on all of uh Khal drogo's constituents the person who now becomes the the new head boss is whoever is strong enough to force that title away from whoever else wants to get it like whoever is able to claim that and you know, claim the loyalty of the people who, who once served Drogo. Uh, and that's usually through violence and blood and guts and gore. I mean, we already know how things roll at Dothraki weddings, Rob. Uh, you can only imagine how things roll at a Dothraki coronation ceremony. Mm-hmm. Right. So Daenerys uh, will not leave Drogo. She ends up recruiting uh, Mary Mazder to come back in. And Danny requests that she uses some of her magic, specifically blood magic, to be able to bring Drogo back. This feels like a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> blood magic that's not gonna go wrong uh yeah i feel like anytime you're bringing blood magic into the into the equation like automatically you're you should raise your hackles like you should be a little bit like ah i don't know oh, since blood when magic do you poo poo blood magic listen i don't want to get into any really personal stories on this podcast but next time you see me buy me a drink and i'll tell you all about my uh my misadventures with blood magic it's not great it's not pretty i do not recommend. One star out of seven. <laughs> One star. <laughs> All right. That's my official review uh, of Blood Magic. Yeah, good, good job. All right. So you're, you're a real Forrest McNeil. So when <laughs> uh, we have so many of these uh, different storylines that will uh, be set up for the future of Game of Thrones, and I'm very eager to talk about them. Is there anything else you want to get into from the non-spoiler stuff, Josh? Uh, from the non-spoiler stuff, I guess the one thing that's like worth noting for sure is Jon Snow meets another Targaryen. There's a different Targaryen now that we have to factor into the equation. Up until this point, we thought it was only Daenerys and Viserys. Uh, Viserys, you know, R.I.P. If you want to, you know, say he should be resting peacefully, at least, you know, he's resting right now. He's somewhere. Uh, Daenerys is the only active Targaryen on the board. She's pregnant, so there will be a Targaryen uh, child in her future. Uh, that's very nice. Uh, but there is also now Maester Aemon to consider. Maester Aemon, who was one of the key characters at the Night's Watch all the way through this point, who we weren't really thinking too much about, I think, in terms of any, like, what's this guy really all about? But he has this moment with Jon Snow where he's talking to Jon Snow about the fact that, uh, I know that you want to ride south and you want to join the war because your brother Rob is off in battle and your father's been captured and this must be ripping you up inside. I have been through something similar because 
because he is a Targaryen. Aemon is a Targaryen, and he is referencing uh, what happened at the end of Robert's Rebellion and how the Mad King was brutally slain, as was his entire family, by the Lannisters. And this was something that really ripped Maester Aemon up once upon a time. And John seems to be, like, really shocked that this guy is a Targaryen. It makes him only the second living Targaryen on the board uh, here on Game of Thrones. So it's exciting stuff. I think that's a really cool development that you get out of this episode as well. Okay. All right. So let's get into talking about all of the spoilers. Wait, there's spoilers other than Ned Stark being dead? Yes. Yes. There are more oh, yeah. things. There are more things Big that time. happen in the future of Game of Thrones that we need to get into starting now. Sound the horns. Shake out the, the last one. Okay. Spoilers. The horns of spoilers have arrived, and now we can talk about. Well, there's actually another Targaryen in that scene with Mister Aemon, and it's John, and John's a Targaryen. Yeah. John's a Targaryen. John's a Targaryen. I can say that in the spoiler section. Yeah. Okay. So this is a you know it's an interesting development there. So based on this conversation, we should assume that. Maester Aemon does not know about Jon Snow, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I've wondered about this, and I was excited to get back to the scene to see if there was like anything that's really going to trigger you into thinking that he knows that John is um, is a Targaryen, that he is uh, that he is more than he realizes. And I guess it's not totally impossible that like Lord Commander Mormont and Maester Aemon are aware of this to some degree, and maybe like they've agreed to really like keep a tight leash on John and like a really close eye on him and under understand his potential pivotal importance and like maybe that helps explain why lord commander mormont is like so quick to give a valyrian sword to Jon snow like that re- i know he saved his life but man that seems like really really quick like you're lord commander of the night's watch and you get your sheets changed every day so clearly you're living a ritzier life than your other brothers in black but you're living such a glamorous life that you could just give a valyrian sword away that's cushy uh so i wonder like i do wonder a little bit if there's any way that you know ned clued them in uh or if benjen knew and he clued them in is it possible that there are a couple of people that are in on the targaryen secret obviously it's not going to matter lord commander mormont and aemon are both going to be dead by the time that john uh finds out he's a targaryen since that hasn't even happened yet through seven seasons of the show we know he's a targaryen um but it's still it's a really it's a cool scene in terms of um you know mirroring what we know about john now that he is talking to uh you know one of his one of his relatives he's talking to one of his, um, you know, a very important person in his family history. Now, are you saying that you think it's possible that Gior Mormont had some sort of a clue that Jon Snow is this potential prince that was promised and that's why he feels like he has so much potential and then uh, gives him the Valerian steel sword? I don't think it's off the table. I don't think it's, I don't think that it really matters too much either way because Lord Commander Mormont is going to be soups dead in just a couple of seasons from now and well before anything involving John being like the leader of the White Walker charge is even going to come into, come into the mix. But it wouldn't shock me. It wouldn't totally shock me. We'll never know. Uh, but it wouldn't completely stun me if he, if he knew that. I mean, I think that, uh, if you're, if you're Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, like if you've earned that spot and you take your vows very 
very ser- seriously and you will you will take no wives and you will have no family or, or riches or possessions or anything like that. I feel like you can you can keep secret if you're the Lord Commander of that order. So it wouldn't shock me if he knew somehow. I'd be surprised that uh, to me, I feel like that he might just look at him as like the most gifted uh, swordsman prospect that they've had at the wall in quite some time. And if he was going to totally give that possible, sword yeah. away, that it feels like that it, I, I don't necessarily uh, I mean, let's look for more clues on that. I, I've never even thought about that as a possibility. But I, I that uh, I feel like I'm coming down on the side of uh, I don't think that he could have known. I don't think that it, like I don't really have a, a super hot stance on it. Like, you know, take it or leave it. I don't I don't really I don't I don't feel super strongly that Lord Commander Mormont knows about John Targaryen. I just don't think it's impossible. Uh, I do think like, man, he must have just been itching to get rid of that sword. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, right. he's, he's got a, a Valyrian sword burning in his pocket. Like that's a you know, it's a the fire sale of that thing is uh, it was impressive. Uh, but no, I thought I thought it was great to hear from Maester Aemon here and to like uh, get a little bit of that backstory a little bit further and I, I don't know how much he knows about Jon Snow I think in the book uh, it's it's implied that he knows a little bit more um, but you know he, he dies before any kind of interaction with Jon can take place there as well so it never really comes to fruition so you have to like take these moments where you can where like you have this you have this scene uh, where John is interacting with a Targaryen for the first time. Um, it's cool. I like it. I, I really like it quite a bit. Okay. The seeds of the Red Wedding are certainly sown in this episode, Josh, as we end up seeing this deal being made between uh, House Frey and House Stark, where Cat Stark promises that Rob will marry one of these Frey daughters. Obviously, we know uh, that will not be the case interesting in this episode that Kat Stark says that she needs to go and be the person to negotiate this treaty with uh, Lord Frey she says Lord Walder will never harm me Water. Yeah, would never harm me would never harm me. yeah 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 right yeah right uh i forget who says it but somebody says yeah unless there was a prophet in it uh and that guy was a prophet because of course that is exactly what's going to happen uh in just a couple of seasons that walter frey of course is going to very much harm catelyn stark he's going to have her killed uh and very much for profit where he is going to be sealing an alliance with the lannisters at that point um um, so, yeah, all of the seeds for that are laid out here. Uh, if last week's episode, if the pointy end was already establishing that, if it was already kind of setting things into motion as Catwin and Rob are talking for the first time about the capacity for cruelty that Tywin Lannister has displayed in the past and what they could be up against if they lose, you get even more of that here uh, where somebody says, I'm blanking on who, say, who says it, um, expect nothing of Walder Frey and you'll never be surprised. Mm-hmm. If only Robin Catlin had held on to that little piece of wisdom uh, and they could have walked into the Red Wedding expecting that, you know, bread and salt would not be enough of a shield to prevent what was going to come next. Uh, they might still be alive. But it's it's cool that the track is really laid very, very, very early uh, for the way that these two characters are going to get killed off eventually. Yeah. And so Rob Stark seems at the time he's like, oh, OK, sure. Uh, whatever. You know, I have to do whatever it takes to be able to uh, cross with my men but uh that's before he met the love of his life yeah before he met the love of his life 
Ah, Talissa. Love, love Talissa. Uh, miss her, miss her dearly. She is also gone. Um, but I think it's a, it's an, an interesting thing to parallel with, uh, what's said earlier in, um, in this very episode, the, the conversation that comes up about like what happens with love. Love is the death of duty to take it back to the Eamon and, and John scene where Maester Eamon tells John, did you ever wonder why the men of the night's watch take no wives and father no children? So they will not love. Love is the death of duty. If the day should ever come when your Lord Father was for- forced to choose between honor on the one hand and those he loves on the other, what would he do? Uh, and John says he would do whatever was right no matter what. And Maester Eamon continues that the, then Lord Stark is one man in 10,000. Most of us are not so strong. What is honor compared to a woman's love? And of course, that speaks to Ned's choice later on in this episode that he is going to choose his love for Sansa and Arya and the rest of his family and any hope for their peaceful continued existence uh, over his honor. He will he will sacrifice his honor in the name of his family, the people that he loves. But it also speaks to Rob's eventual fate, where Rob is making the choice here, like, yes, I will marry one of Walter Frey's daughters because that's what's going to get us through the twins, and we need to get through the twins if we are going to win this war, if we're going to even have a shot. Uh, but he's going to he's gonna fall in love. You know, he's going to fall in love next season, and because of that, he is going to spurn Walter Frey, who is then going to brutally have Rob and the rest of his fellows murdered. Uh, so just a little extra wisdom from Maester Eamon connecting not just to John and Ned Stark in this episode, but to Rob as well. Okay, let's talk about the Khal Drogo situation with Danny. And so Danny is learning uh, on the fly from Jorah about the politics of the uh, Kalazar. And so we get this blood magic involved. Now, Josh, uh, we also see Danny go into labor in this episode but she's also knocked down on her stomach but the blood magic is going on could you just give me a timeline of events of what causes danny to go into labor yeah, I don't know what causes her to go into labor, uh, but I mean, she is, she's gonna be brought into that tent, and Miri Mazdur has said, like, don't have anybody come into this tent. It would be bad. It would be like crossing the streams. Uh, so I wonder, you know, if, if that is, if that's really what the trigger is. Like, I'm a little bit murky on the exact mechanics of how this all plays out without having watched the season one finale in a good little while, so I'll have a better memory of it, obviously, after next week. Uh, but this is, you know, the start of the storyline of Danny is going to believe uh, after this from this point forward that she is unable to have children um, I don't know maybe future episodes will will prove that that is not quite as accurate as she believes we're certainly operating under a potential theory that John and Danny uh, might produce the third head of the dragon who knows mm-hmm. yeah well in this exchange with Mary Mazdar. Danny says, okay, there must be a way. Uh, she says, well, there is a spell. Some would say that death is cleaner. Should Danny have drilled down for more information there? Right. I think that Danny trusting Miri Mazder, it's, it's not great. Uh, you know, like he's already in such dire straits. She hasn't been able, able to help him so far. Nobody seems to want this person around called Drogo. Like for whatever reasons that are not great about the way that they treat slaves and prisoners and all of that, which is all objectively awful, there might be something to be said for the fact that like they're really condemning the witch woman. Like she shouldn't be near called Drogo. 
and Danny is not listening to anybody about it. And even as Khal Drogo's wound is festering, she's going to bring Miri Mazdur in closer. But I think that this is, you know, really the the formative moment for her in terms of um, being a lot more reticent about who she's going to trust moving forward and being a little bit more judgmental and being a little bit more battle hardened. Like, yeah, she's going to go through season two and a lot of that's going to be a bad look for Danny as well. In fact, I'm really dreading the Danny storyline of season two, which is maybe my least favorite Whoa. stretch of Game of Thrones ever. Uh, yeah, I think that the season two Danny storyline, let's see, we'll, we'll track it when we get into it, but I'll, I'll plant the flag now is I think that that is um, maybe other than the, the Dorn stuff in, in season five gives it a run for its money. But I think the Danny stuff in Karth has to be at least the second worst storyline in the history of Game of Thrones. Well, I smell a list coming. <laughs> yeah. All right. We can develop that as we go. <laughs> That's not Carl Drogo's festering wound that I smell. No, 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 no. That, but it's still, I mean, it smells similarly. Yeah. It doesn't smell great. It doesn't smell yeah. good. I mean, there is that point where Jorah comes in to check out what's going on with Drogo's wound. And I kind of want him to say, Kalishi, uh, there's like a bird's nest in here. What what the hell is she doing? <laughs> Can't you see this is terrible? <laughs> and what's with the bird's nest? I mean, yeah, I, guess I like mean, you don't, a- definitely. I've never seen that in any sort of triage situation where they say like, okay, get a bird's nest in there. <laughs> not a Trader Joe's bird's nest, which is delicious. Mm-hmm, sure. uh, yeah, it's a very different bird's nest. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, Dothraki uh, culture and, and uh, the people in Essos, they've got their own ways of doing things. I don't want to judge. I don't want to judge. But it's not going to work out well for Drogo. I got to say, there is a moment here where Jorah's like, yo, Danny, she's, he's going to die. We have to go now. Like, if we, we, if we don't leave now, like, we could really die. And, like, they will rip your child out and it will be awful. It will be terrible. Terrible. Uh, I know of a good port and a shy and like he gets cut off. And meanwhile, I'm here like, no, take him up on that. I want you to go to a shy. I want to see a shy. How great would Danny and Jorah in a shy have been? That would have been a phenomenal side trip. Khaleesi, I present to you a shy. It would have just been fantastic. Like 7,000 more excuses for Jorah to say the word a shy, which is clearly the Yunkai is really good. Oh my God. Just like keep Jorah and Essos forever. Like I feel like it would, it would work out to have an entire storyline in Essos, even now if it meant Jorah Mormont could just like say words from (laughs) Essos. Like just talk about, you know, bravo, you know, just like anything. Like Ian Glenn is just so killer whenever he's talking about that kind. Right. Okay. So you mentioned the Shay and Tyrion and Braun stuff. Uh, we get a lot of backstory here on Tyrion and his uh, star-crossed love affair with Taisha, which is going to really set up a lot of the Tyrion and Tywin drama over these next couple of seasons, including the introduction of Shay. Uh, anything that you want to touch on from that backstory? So I think it's it's a much bigger deal in in the in the books than it is on the show. Uh, in fact, it is the source of uh, a much earlier um, two sided rivalry between Tyrion and Jaime than the one that exists on the show, where Tyrion is eventually going to be released from prison at the end of season four by Jaime, and they're going to part amicably until Jaime, of course, finds out what Tyrion does to Tywin. Um, but in the book, like they're going to have like the real blow up. Over 
over Taisha is going to be a really big deal between them there. Um, and they're not going to be on the same page and who knows how that's going to be resolved in the books if the books are ever complete. Uh, so there's that. The other thing too is of course we know that Tyrion is going to kill his father Tywin at some point down the line. And when that moment comes, I don't know if it's still just quite as fresh in your head is this, this story and the way that Tyrion tells it here. But like Tyrion killing his father, it's a long time coming. Uh, the thing that his father forced him to participate in, the way that he punished him uh, for the Taisha situation is so disgusting and so vile and so, so monstrous. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, there's a collected quality about Tywin Lannister that I think um, for some fans of Game of Thrones, like gets you to stop short of condemning him as like in the same stratosphere of monsters that you see elsewhere on the show, like the Joffreys and Ramses of the world. But this is the guy who orchestrates the Red Wedding, and that's pretty monstrous. But I think that this is, you know, this is just as vile and evil what Tyrion is describing. Tywin forces his men upon uh, on Tysha, giving her a silver for every guy. Oh, what a consolation. Like, it's disgusting. It's horrible. And so this backstory for me has always made me feel so good about what Tyrion eventually does to Tywin. So deserved. Such justice. I still feel awful about what Tyrion eventually does to Shay. And this is the Shay backstory. You know, this is the first episode of Shay. Take or leave Shay as a character. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, your, your mileage may vary on just how uh, effective she is on screen and, and how much you enjoy seeing this character on your screen. But the fact that Tyrion is eventually going to kill this woman basically out of spite and jealousy like we've never really seen any sort of answer to that like he was pretty miserable in season five and he hasn't fully found his groove uh since he left westeros at the end of season four i think but i feel like some sort of uh some sort of comeuppance really needs to come Tyrion's way for that hmm. uh I, I just it's it's like the fact that like it feels like it's just completely swept under the rug and like water under the bridge like that eh, shouldn't be water under the bridge i don't think. all right well i am looking forward to exploring that storyline with you on this rewatch. Uh, one of the things that comes up in this, in uh, they're sort of like playing all these like parlor games. There is a point where Shay is trying to see how long Tyrion could keep the burning candle on his arm, and Tyrion does uh, succumb to the heat of the candle uh, rather quickly. Josh. Does this in your mind poo poo the dragon has three heads theory of Tyrion being the third Targaryen? Yeah, I don't know how much we've talked about Tyrion Targaryen in Winter Was Here, but it's certainly something we've talked about on Game of Thrones podcasts before. So just like the super fast version is the theory posits that the Mad King is Tyrion's actual father and Tywin Lannister is not Tyrion's actual father and that the Mad King, uh, had raped Tyrion's mother and Tyrion is the product of that. So that's the, that's the way that that theory goes. Uh, I feel like it's something I could see happening in the books. It's not something that I really see happening on the show. I think with six episodes left especially and John not even knowing that he's a Targaryen there's just no time for a Tyrion Targaryen reveal uh, but I think that there's a lot of reason to suspect that it's still at least a possibility in the book especially stemming, uh, stemming from uh, the world of Ice and Fire the big encyclopedia about a song of Ice and Fire that 
once again, everyone should own. It's awesome. Um, but this wouldn't poo-poo it for me necessarily that Tyrion is not able to withstand a candle on his forearm for any meaningful length of time, given that John grabs a really hot torch in the pointy end and burns his hand through that and is definitely a Targaryen. So I think maybe it's just like Danny's superpower. She's just the she's just the fireproof Targaryen and John and John is cool in his own way. And if Tyrion's a Targaryen, he's certainly cool in his way as well. <laughs> yes. Very cool. Josh, back up at the wall. What did you make of the news that uh, uh, Lord Commander Mormont is sending Alistair Thorne to King's Landing with the uh, zombified hand of the white? Yeah, that's the, you know, that's the first version of the plan that's eventually going to go through later on in Game of Thrones. Uh, Lord Commander Mormont is going to send Alistair Thorne with the zombified hand of the white who tried to kill him to prove to the people in King's Landing that this is, uh, there's a problem. There's a problem up north and you guys should probably stop all of your infighting and you should come up here and we should deal with it because if we don't, we're probably all going to die. doesn't seem quite that dramatic yet, but it'll get to that point. Uh, of course, it's not going to work. Certainly there is not a king who is going to be receptive to such a plan uh, currently inhabiting the throne. But on top of that, the hand is going to decompose along the way. Uh, It's not really going to be indicative of anything. It's not going to be able to prove anything. Uh, That's why they're going to need to bring like a still living active white down to King's Landing in order to prove the point later on. But uh, points for, you know, points for a first attempt. Do we get that in the next episode? Jon Snow will be more creative. Uh, I don't remember if it's the very next episode or if it's season. I, I, I imagine it's got to be uh, in the next episode, but uh, we'll get okay. there. We'll, Looking we'll forward we'll, to we'll that. We'll encounter it when we get there. Yeah, I also enjoyed uh, that after Lord Commander Mormont gives John Longclaw, which thank God he did. Otherwise, um, Hardhome could have turned out differently. A lot of these confrontations with White Walkers could have turned out differently for Jon Snow. But I love that he's like, this is a man sword. You got to act like a man now. Uh, and John's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. And then, like, John, like, is, like, walking through to his quarters and, like, everybody's giving him, like, all of the attaboys, right? Check out my sword, everybody. Yeah. (laughs) It's just so great that instantly John regresses that he goes in. He's like, yeah, I've got a Valyrian sword. What's up? Mm -hmm. And everyone just grabs the Valyrian sword is, like, waving it around and running running around. And John's not even, like, putting up any kind of fight. Like, no, stop. I'm a man now. You have to give me my sword back. It's just like, yeah, play. It's fun. It's cool. It's great. Mm-hmm. And he's even like threatening to like leave the Night's Watch like right afterwards. So uh, Lord Commander Mormont, like you're giving a guy who's already pretty big for his britches of Valyrian sword. Like feels like a little soon. Feels like a little soon. All right. We saw Varys in the start of the episode have another conversation with Ned down in the cells. I thought it was interesting to get the backstory about Varys to some degree where he talked about how when he was younger, he spent a lot of time hanging out with actors And they taught him that each man has a role to play. Josh, do you see any sort of greater significance to the Lady Crane storyline from season six after this? 
Interesting. Um, I hadn't really considered it. Um, what are you? What do you? What did you see? What did you sense? What did you pick up? Uh, on? I almost feel like that uh, when I hear Varys say that, it seems to me it like he's almost like uh, referring to that he, uh, you know, it's almost like it's to some degree breaking the fourth wall of knowing that uh, you know he's a character in this storyline. Uh, we all are. We all have this role to play in this story. It's a little meta to me in terms of like the actors or the character like in this you know this great sprawling work sort of like saying like well you know i i do have my duty to play in this story yeah no that's interesting on the metal level and then i think it's also instructive just of of varus once again like um you know we've been we've been talking about this a little bit in the spoiler sections about how like through seven seasons at this point like i feel like we have our our fingers on the varus pulse like i think we we can say pretty definitively that he's team targaryen when he talks about how he serves the realm that feels like his authentic truth and in the active watching of game of thrones your first pass through you're not really sure where varus stands but varus tells you straight straight up where he stands a couple times early on. Uh, and there's, you know, another instance of that here where he is saying to Ned, like, I'm the master of whispers. You know, I'm supposed to be sly and without scruples. I'm a good actor. Uh, I'm playing that part. Uh, and, you know, at the in the moment of watching it that first time, like, I feel like you're kind of in Ned's shoes where you're dubious of it. You're not really feeling exactly what it is that Varys is, is saying here. Like, you're not sure that that's the way of it. But that's the way of it. Varys is an honest guy in in his private moments uh so i like that a lot i like that a lot and i also like him talking about how he is an actor as he is disguised as a jailer right now uh and that's something that the that the books play with a little bit more is varus as like a master of disguise uh somebody who you know is able to to take on different identities from time to time um not quite in the same way as like a faceless man or anything like that you're still getting like a vaguely varus shaped figure uh, any time that right. he is assuming a costume, but it's something he does a little bit more in the books than he does on the show, but this is a, a great little nod to that as he's showing up here as the jailer, so I love this scene. I think this scene is great, and also just as like a, a book-ending sequence of the episode, that you start in the darkness from Ned's perspective, and then the first real bit of light that you see is just Ned Stark's head, still attached to the body at this point, but of course the final images of the episode will be Ned losing that head, and you can only imagine the darkness that he is uh, is is seeing at that point. Um, so it's it's just it's this it's ah it's a such a greatly uh, it's just such a well constructed episode. I love this episode. And so then much. let's just talk through some of the fallout that's going to come as a result of Ned getting uh, losing his head here in this episode. I mean, this is going to be you know really we've talked about for so long you know that there was no turning back. There's no turning back. There really is no turning back now at this point from where we're headed with the war. Or the five kings. Yeah, and it's it's great for for so many reasons. This scene is is awesome and just like a great historical touchstone. Um, given what we know about Game of Thrones now, you know the this moment will be evoked by Arya talking to Arya, Arya talking to Sansa when they reunite in Winterfell in season seven, and just like talking about like their different experiences of how this all played out. Um, you know, Arya like having like whether it was for show for Littlefinger or whether it was like she was truly angry at Sansa when they when they reunited just remembering her not being as devastated as Arya was by everything she that happened. She looked upset. She was her- upset. 
Yeah, but Arya doesn't see it. And I think that that's something that holds up really well. You know, Arya is on the statue watching everything happening and she is like ready to rock. She has needle at the ready and she's like waiting to see if something bad is going to happen. And once the bad things start happening, once Joffrey gives the good old off with his head, uh, Arya is in the crowd and she is like racing forward and she is going to try and do something about it. And that really measures up with what she talked to Sansa about, about like how, like how, like I would have done something. I would have stopped it. Uh, and she is, as she's racing, like is not seeing Sansa being so upset. And up to that moment, there are a lot of images of Sansa smiling, you know, probably super scared and just like buzzing with paranoid, awful energy, but she is smiling and she is trying to look calm. Um, she smiles at Ned as Ned shows up because like she really innocently believes that this is going to go well. So that's Arya's memory of Sansa on that day and she doesn't get to have eyes on the fact that Sansa is going to explode into tears and be completely devastated by what's about to happen. I think that plays nicely into the fact that Arya is going to have bad memories of Sansa moving forward. Uh, so that's one way in which um, this scene really still holds up given what we know uh, in, in yeah, seven. Sansa was pretty composed based on the first part of the scene, but I, I agree it was probably entirely because she was like, okay, well, you know, we got this. I sort of, uh, you right. know, uh, paved the groundwork for my dad to get this sweetheart deal. Right. Yeah. And just Arya never gets to see the other side of that. So I think that that's really cool. Um, and then, of course, we mentioned Varys is going to be like, hey, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. I think the that. only time in the whole series that Varys <laughs> is like losing its cool. We've seen him. We've seen him panicked a couple of times. Like we've seen a few moments where Varys breaks character a little bit, but that's like the most public occasion where he's like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Uh, don't do that. That's a bad call." But like we've seen him, like especially around like magic, and you know he has a great scene with Melisandre in season seven where he seems really unsettled, uh, and another one in in season six, I believe, as well, where where he has another moment like that uh, when he meets with one of the red priestesses. But it, it's yet another sign that Varys would have liked Ned Stark to survive this, like that feels like the truth to me um i also like that cersei is somebody who is saying to joffrey like don't do this this is this is madness um for cersei to say the execution of one high lord is madness in this moment that's kind of ironic to look back on given just the 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 sheer magnitude of the atrocities cersei is going to commit in the future yeah, well you said at the top of the episode that you have a lannister king i mean that's what they do they're crazy they're crazy peeps. They really, really are. Uh, but yeah, like it, it feels like authentically Cersei would have been fine for Ned Stark to go back to Castle Black and just, you know, take the black and live out his days up on the wall. Like that would have been her plan. So if Joffrey wasn't as impulsive as he was, if he wasn't as awful as he was, Ned Stark walks away from this. Ned Stark gets to live. Ned Stark gets to go and take the black. Ned Stark gets to go to the Night's Watch. Ned Stark gets to re unite with Jon Snow. Ned Stark promised the next time he sees Jon Snow, we'll talk about your mother. If Ned Stark survives this, does he go to the wall? Does he talk to Jon? Does he tell Jon he's a Targaryen? And given the magnitude of what they're facing beyond the wall, do you think that some sort of plot gets enacted from that point forward where Ned tries to rally the realm behind Jon Snow, behind his nephew as the true Targaryen king? Do you think that that's the order of events? Uh, I'm not sure because I think that if anybody is going to take that oath of 
the Night's Watch seriously, it's going to be Ned Stark. So uh, I don't know if Ned ha- ever had any plans for John to come back and be. I know we've t- we touched on that. Like, what what was he thinking? Was that a good hiding spot for him? But once John takes the oath, I can't imagine Ned signing off on a plan that was going to involve John leaving the Night's Watch. I think that the the argument against that would be that Ned is one of the co-architects of Robert's Rebellion. So when he saw injustice in the past at the highest level, he started a war over it. Uh, you know, he was willing to do that. He co-authored that with Robert Baratheon and John Aaron. And, you know, that was it was very personal for him. You know, a lot of it stemming from uh, the disappearance of his sister and the brutal murder of his father and his brother. Uh, so Ned was personally linked to that and he was willing to go to war over that. I think given everything that he had just gone through here in King's Landing, losing so many members of his house, uh, just brutally butchered by the Lannisters, knowing that Joffrey is not uh, the next in line of succession because of he's not Robert Baratheon's son, maybe not rallying everybody behind Jon Snow, but I don't, I don't know if he's, you know, measuring his new obligations to the Night's Watch, which he is now just joining, versus what he knows to be deep injustice and corruption within the crown, I feel like that second thing would win out. And I feel like especially compounded with if Ned makes it to the wall and starts to catch a whiff of the White Walker uh, threat that is drifting their way, might figure that this is like, we have to do this. Like, we have, like, I've got no choice. There won't even be a Night's Watch if I don't start making some of these types of moves. It's just fun to consider. It's fun to think about and you don't really think about it often because we're so far away from it now. But the alternate universe where Joffrey isn't such a little shit and orders Ned's execution and it goes the expected way and Ned gets to take the black. Like, how does that play out? I think is a, is a really fun alternate Game of Thrones universe to consider. Okay. All right. Well, lots of great stuff to talk about here in Baylor. We have the season one finale coming up next week. Is there anything you want to highlight before we get into that in next week's episode? Dragons are coming. Yeah. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's all I've got. No, I mean, you know, we'll get one final Ned Stark appearance <laughs> in the form of a severed head that you can see alongside another famous severed head. I don't know if you know that yes, story, Rob, yes. do you? Okay, so we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that when we get into the season finale. Of course, the final Call Drogo episode, at least while he is still alive, not the final Jason Momoa appearance. By the way, the uh, congratulations to Jason Momoa, who recently tied the knot this week. Oh, no yes. kidding. The knot on his brain? No, no. Was it a hair no, joke? It's not. And uh, he actually has a uh, famous wife. Did you know this? Who he's married to? Who is he married Lisa to? Lisa Bonet. No yeah. kidding. Wow. How about yeah. that? I think they have been, uh, been together for a long time. I think they have uh, they have a couple of uh, kids together, uh, maybe even three. Uh, but yeah, they got married. I'm sure that uh, my wonderful wife, Emily Fox, would be shaming me right now for not knowing that. She's a big Lisa. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, he has so much going on these days. Such a huge month for Jason Momoa. Yeah. Good luck with Justice League, buddy. <laughs> I hope Hope it works out for you. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I shall not. Uh, I shall not shade what I do not know okay. yet. But 
Doesn't look good. Doesn't look great. All right. So uh, that's what's coming up uh, next week. In other post-show recaps news, uh, you and I are uh, underway of our watching of The Walking Dead. All of those recaps are up on postshowrecaps.com. Mr. Robot as well. So uh, Star Trek Discovery. A lot of stuff happening on the postshowrecaps.com. Very, very busy times here on Post Show Recaps, and busy is good. We like it. We hope you guys are enjoying it as well. So please subscribe. PostShowRecaps.com slash iTunes is the way to do that. Your ratings, your reviews, all of that good stuff, greatly appreciated by us. All right. Thank you guys so much for checking out. We Believe it or not, we're nine episodes through our rewatch. We will close out the first season next time. Uh, check these out every Tuesday at postshowrecaps.com as well as at thehollywoodreporter.com. Follow Josh Wiggler on Twitter at Round Howard. I'm at Rob Sisterner. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye.